Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. Welcome back to FOMO Friday, where we try to keep you from that fear of missing out by bringing you a collection of articles uh, today from the Daily Wire where uh, we think that you're going to think interesting or that maybe you should you should know or maybe you didn't even hear because you only watch or listen to propaganda media. But we lo- love to bring these to you. And, and today we want to start off with kind of a lighthearted one. Um, Chief Twit is what Elon Musk is calling himself on Twitter now. So Elon Musk kicked off of uh, his uh, imminent takeover of of, uh, of Twitter. Uh, he, he got kicked off of Twitter, of course, uh, for a while. Um, he's now wanting to buy Twitter. And, uh, and he's now, it looks like it's imminent. He's definitely going to be able to do it. It's been kind of an off again, on again type thing. Um, and, and now that it's, it's imminent that he's going to take it over. Um, he, he's, he actually brought in a sink into the company's headquarters on Wednesday afternoon as he visited the offices. <laughs> Musk's visit to the company's headquarters comes as he is expected to meet with employees before his acquisition of the company is finalized by the end of the week. Quote, entering Twitter headquarters, let that sink in, Musk, uh, Musk tweeted. Uh, Musk changed his Twitter bio to Chief Twit <laughs> and changed his location to Twitter headquarters. Which is kind of interesting. Uh, CNBC reported that Twitter chief marketing officer Leslie Burnland sent a message to employees that Musk was visiting this week. Quote, meeting with folks, walking the halls, and continuing to dive in on the important work you all do. If you're in San Francisco and see him around, say hi. (laughs) Well, they they actually didn't really say hi, but we'll get into that in a second. Because <laughs> earlier in the day, Musk said that one of the things that he most appreciated about the platform was how it empowered citizen journalism. Quote, a beautiful thing about Twitter is how it empowers citizen journalism. People are able to disseminate news without an establishment bias, Musk tweeted. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Twitter has had a real bias, and that's one of the reasons that this particular podcast does not have a Twitter page, uh, is that uh, obviously it has been very biased and it has been very aggressive about taking on uh, conservative type um, uh, groups and this type of thing. So we chose not to have one. Um, you know, we, we're on others. Obviously we're on Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook group. We also are on MeWe and Instagram, but we haven't done Twitter. Now we, that might change here now that Musk, uh, is, is, uh, the one that's, uh, that's going to be owning it. So, uh, Musk will reportedly gut Twitter with massive cuts when he takes over getting rid of the overwhelmingly majority of the company. Yeah. The Washington Post reported that Musk told prospective investigators 
that he plans to get rid of, get this, nearly 75% of Twitter's 7,500 workers, whittling the company down to a skeleton staff of just over 2,000. The report said that even if Musk's acquisition of Twitter somehow does not go through, large cuts are still expected as the current people running the company planned to get rid of roughly 25% of the company's staff. Obviously, it's been overbloated type of, uh, of organization. The report said that the planned cuts by Twitter's executives helped to explain why the company wanted to sell to Musk once he made the offer. So again, like I said, this has been an on-again, off-again type thing. Uh, they actually even sued him when it looked like he was pulling out because, uh, because basically Twitter was not what they said it was. There was a lot of bots on there. <laughs> and not real people or anything. And so uh, he said, well, if these aren't real people and I don't want to buy it for this amount. Anyway, it, it's on again. It looks like everything's a go. Uh, they just wanted to try to hide the uh, the cuts that obviously need to be done. And it looks like he's going to make even more cuts uh, than what they would have done. Twitter employees sent a list of demands to Musk, though, at the start of the week. And this is what I was talking about. They, they're claiming that cutting staff will hurt Twitter's ability to serve the public um, conversation, as they as they put it, a quote, a threat to this magnitude is reckless, undermines our users and customers trust in our platform and is a transparent act of worker intimidation. <laughs> this is what the woke employees claimed. <laughs> they said a threat to workers at Twitter is a threat to Twitter's future. These threats have an impact on us as workers and demonstrate a fundamental disconnect with the realities of operating Twitter. They threaten our livelihoods. Well, okay, I'll agree with that. Access to essential health care, yeah, if you're fired, and the ability for visa holders to stay in the country they work in. We cannot do our work in an environment of constant harassment and threats. Without our work, there's no Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, except, obviously, others will work in, in your in your stead. Uh, and, and obviously, there's too many of you, and you need to, to be uh, slimmed down. Uh, a little belt tightening, as they call it. The letter demanded that Musk cease these negligent layoff threats. I don't think these are going to be threats. So the letter then spelled out four core demands. I love this. Okay, here's their demands. We demand, this is, we demand respect. We demand leadership to respect the platform and the workers who maintain it by com- committing to persevering and preserving the current headcount. Hmm. Don't think that's going to happen. Safety is what they demand. We demand that leadership does not discriminate against workers on the basis of their race, gender, disability, sexual orientation, or political beliefs. We also demand safety for workers on visas who will be forced to leave the country they work in if they are laid off. They also demand protection. We demand Elon Musk explicitly Commit to preserve our benefits, those both listed in the merger agreement and not, as far as the remote worker types, we demand leadership to establish and ensure fair uh, severance policies for all workers before and after any change in ownership. 
and they demand dignity. We demand transparent, prompt, and thoughtful communication around our working conditions. And we demand to be treated with dignity and to not be treated as mere pawns in a game played by billionaires. <laughs> Quite the letter, right? I mean, seriously, can you imagine working for a company that is soon to have a new owner and boss First, making demands of this new boss before he even takes control, and especially after he has already said that he wants to eliminate 75, 75% of the positions. Can you imagine the gall that it takes to, to write up and sign this letter, get on board? I don't care how many people sign this thing. To get on board with this letter after you have a new boss that's about to come in who said he's going to he's going to make layoffs, or hey, oh, here you go. Can you imagine being Elon Musk and the workforce has has to you know ha- has to be reduced? There has to be decisions made, and now this letter makes it really really easy to decide. Who goes and who stays? <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, you just take you just take the signatures off the letter of demands, and you say, okay, those guys are out. <laughs> I mean, they made it really, really easy for him. All right, let's move on. Le- leftist group that uses children to attack moderate parents turns on its adult boss for being white. Wow, well, this is an interesting one. Teens Take Charge, that's the name of the group, Teens Take Charge, a New York City far-left activist group that used children to hurl accusations of racism against parents who wanted to keep their schools open and and nearly succeeded in ending the city's um, tradition of of rigorous merit-based magnet schools. They apologized Tuesday for harming children and said the group itself was racist. <laughs> a lead, a lead uh, player in, in the education culture wars of the last few years in the nation's largest school district, the group advised um, itself as, a, as an, an organic group of largely minority children and, and lo- uh, lobbed rhetorical bombs while, while leftists claimed that any rebuttal amounted to attacking children. So in other words, these, these were like what terrorists do. They, they, they made these children a buffer. So the the children, they sent the children out to attack, but if you then try to defend yourself against these racist attacks and things, well, you're attacking children. (laughs) In reality, the group was part of a nonprofit called the bell, which was run by a white man named Taylor McGraw. Now in its apology, TTC said it has um, separated from the Bell and McGraw after some of our community members were harmed by the white norms he perpetuated. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? <laughs> it got a new, it got a new uh, interim uh, adult uh, executive director, and and her name is Thivanya Saraskti. Is I guess how you pronounce it, and she's a queer Tamil woman, as she puts it, uh, who wrote in a letter that she learned TTC wasn't the radical utopia that I thought it was, and that part of our growth as an organization is to acknowledge the harm 
that's taken place at TTC. <laughs> there was a culture at TTC that was harmful to staff and youth, especially to black and brown youth. This included, now here's, here's, you got to get this, this harm, she's going to describe what harm was happening at this group, the TTC. A deep-rooted hustle, time-scarce culture that led to severe burnout. Okay, let me, let me interpret that for you. Interpretation, the organization expected their employees to actually work. And that was harmful. <laughs> Number two, a lack of censoring the most marginalized youth, which contributed to standards rooted in white supremacy and left several black and brown organizers feeling disposable. All right, interpretation. They celebrated those kids that worked hard and encouraged all to do the same. And that was harmful. Number three, the de-radicalization of grassroots organizing models and values during the transition to a nonprofit structure. Interpretation. There were many employees that were not rioting, and that was harmful. <laughs> Number four, explicitly racist remarks by a handful of youth organizers with no systems to address these harmful incidences. Interpretation, too many white kids were talking, and that's harmful. <laughs> and lastly, and white leadership perpetuating racial inequity with our organization. Interpretation, there were too many whites in leadership positions, including the executive director, and that was harmful. <laughs> so here you have this guy, McGraw, who who is just using this thing, using kids. And what happens? Well, the dog turned around and bit him. <laughs> Quote, the harm compounded over time, resulting in tension and a sense of disillusionment so strong, some organizers wanted us to shut it down altogether, it added. The youth and adults who joined this organization, eager to fight for change and justice, but experience harm in the process. We're deeply sorry to the black and brown youth hurt by the culture at TTC. We're deeply sorry to the black femme members of last year's steering committee. We're deeply sorry to the TTC founders for those radical vision whose radical vision TTC strayed. We're deeply sorry. <laughs> Mahad um, Maran, a former New York school board member and Democrat city council candidate who uh, was attacked actually by TTC for disagreeing with its stance that tests are racist because too many Asians excel, uh, told the Daily Wire that the group has much to atone for. Quote, they should apologize to people whose lives they derailed and who suffered real consequences because of their viciousness, she said. They're apologizing to the wrong people about the wrong things. It was a little Maoistic terror cell that went after parents like me who were simply advocating for better education 
for kids, unquote. Now, Marin said it was bad enough that the group used children as human shields for attacks on people trying to save the school system from being dumbed down. The recent apology doesn't fix anything, she said. Apologizing for the fact that Taylor McGraw is a white dude is an idiotic thing to apologize for, she said. He ran the organization exactly according to his own logic. A bunch of kids who are supposed to attack adults who aren't sufficiently leftists. Now, watching them attack the guy who coordinated their vicious attack is pretty interesting, she said. <laughs> I think so, too. The group conducted activism that cur- uh, curiously mirrored teacher union's agenda. <laughs> that That uh, is no shocker, right? Uh, TTC often had children speak at contentious education, uh, education meetings, uh, relying on their youth to give their messages emotional appeal and make it harder to challenge them. But ultimately, parents in New York City did not believe in in lowering standards in schools and achieve certain ratio, uh, uh, racial ratios uh, in a factor in the election of Mayor Eric Adams, who has walked back policies um, that that uh, that were pushed by um, by this group and Bill de Blasio, the previous mayor and that type of thing. So so even in the liberal bastion of New York, they could actually see through this tactic. And they put they put it an end to to getting rid of all of that. So um, here is a story that is becoming all too familiar. The the 1619 Project writer who has made a, an opulent living highlighting racial inequities in school was paid forty thousand dollars to give a speech at a high school just minutes away from the campus of her new employer. According to, this is according to materials obtained by the Daily Wire. Former New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones was paid the sum to give a 45-minute talk on September 20th as part of a three-hour event at Washington Liberty High School in Arlington, Virginia. That's only eight minutes, or I'm sorry, eight miles from Howard University, where she became a tenured professor with the help of $20 million in donations from the MacArthur, Knight, and Ford Foundations, including travel time that that fee amounts to approximately $10,000 an hour. The speech was also an opportunity for Hannah Jones to sell her book, even though the event implied that it was banned. <laughs> so so the book is banned, but you can buy it right over here for only $19.95 or whatever. <laughs> while, while held at a public high school, the talk was a program of the Arlington Public Library, and the cost was so enormous that it spurred tension between the library and, and the Friends of Arlington Library, a nonprofit that raises money to fund library activities, including author events even. On August 9th, Peter Petruski, uh, a, a library division chief, wrote that the speaker's fund was $7,500 over budget, even though the Friends offered $130,000 for Arlington Reads in uh, FY223, which was less than the library said that, that would be needed. Uh, um, on August 11th, Diane Kresh, another library official, called the apparent Arlington Reads 
uh, incumbents uh, troubling and that the the bottom line is that there is a difference of $7,500 over and above the approved budget. Money which is due now to meet fall um, you know, contractual obligations. And she said, I, I'm certain of all, uh, I'm certain all of you can appreciate we cannot jeopardize either the county or the library's financial standing if bills are not paid. So they can't even pay their bills now because they paid this gal $40,000. Now, Claire Christian, uh, the president of the Friends Group, uh, wrote two days later, not necessarily thrilled about the overage. On August 19th, the second installment of $20,000 was wired to Hannah Jones's agent. Um, this, you know, this is one of those things that, that we see so many times where, where liberal leaders with access to taxpayer dollars they funnel large amounts of money to their liberal friends. I, I could give you example after example after example of where um, you know their liberal friends get all kinds of money that nobody else can doesn't isn't able to, to to get. You know, either for speaking fees or whatever the case may be, they get rich really fast off taxpayer money because their friends are in office. And and this is just another shining example of that. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not one that, that looks for things to say, uh, I told you so. But in this case, I told you so. Cases of respiratory um, syntical virus, we're just going to call it RSV, that's what everybody calls it, and other viruses are rising across the nation. The scientists are now saying the uptick is due to measures put in place during the pandemic they restricted immune development. Hmm. The phenomenon is called an immunity gap and especially happens when restrictions and practices that are common during a pandemic limited the spread of the virus, leading to less people developing immunity to them. When people re-enter society, the viruses were back too. Babies often receive antibodies from RSV uh, through their mother's breast milk, but even the mothers often weren't exposed to RSV during the lockdowns. So scientists, Dr. Kevin Meskar and, and uh, Rachel Baker, uh, discussed the issue with CNN and wrote about it uh, this summer in the uh, Lancet. Quote, although many infections and their associated morbidity and, morbili- uh, uh, and mortality were prevented by non-pharmaceutical interventions, Decreased exposure to uh, endemic viruses created an immunity gap. A group of uh, susceptible individuals who avoided infection and therefore lack pathogen-specific immunity to protect against future infection. Okay, so what does this mean? What this means is that because there were so many lockdowns, because of our response to this and the fact that, that people got locked down, um, and weren't able to to uh, be around each other and 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 thus you know obviously be exposed to viruses, the body did not build up an immune to those viruses. And so now that we are out and about more, now all of a sudden people are getting sick. A CNN analysis revealed that cases of respiratory virus started started being observed this spring and are currently sixty percent higher than the highest week of twenty twenty one. The the outset 
said uh, the outlet said that the number is likely higher. Flu is also a concern as the number of cases has been going up slightly sooner than is typical. Other nations all are also seeing odd behavior and other respiratory infections. Um, and hospitals in uh, southern and northern uh, northeast regions of the U.S. are seeing an increase in children coming in with RSV. "Quote: We are uh, we have observed a rise in RSV in multiple U.S. regions, and some regions are nearly seasonal peak levels," said a CDC spokesperson. Um, you know what's interesting is that they they're actually they're testing people as they come in. So, uh, you know, infants, young children are being, are, are being hit really hard and, and, and there's a big spike in their cases. And, and what's interesting is that, that they are doing these, these swabs. Um, so they'll, they'll do like a nasal swab to see what's going on. And not only do they test positive for influenza, but they may have RSV and two or three other viruses at once. So a huge reason that, that we are, are seeing this spike now is that the medical community and our political leaders totally ignored natural immunity. And when it came to our response to COVID, we shouldn't have locked down. And now we're paying the price for it because we don't have, there, there's many of us that don't have that natural immunity to some of the things that we weren't exposed to. So again, you know, I hate to say I told you so, but in this case, I definitely have to say it. And lastly, let's look at this. Did you know that you can have record voter turnout and suppression, voter suppression, at the very same time? Well, Georgia's 2021 voter ID law was su- supposed to usher in a new area of Jim Crow 2.0, according to Democrats. Uh, President Joe Biden said it would make it that that previous era of American history looked like Jim Eagle, if you remember right. Democrats uh, at large, including current Peachtree State gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams, an election denier herself, warned that millions of minorities would be disenfranchised. Except the opposite has happened. Since early voting began on October 17th, more than 1 million people have voted via early voting in absentee ballots. That has smashed previous records. When asked about the fact, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre offered up a just a, a cacophony of excuses, really. She said, quote, as you know, she always starts out with that, as you know. I don't know. I don't know why she starts every answer out with as you know, but she does. As you know, I have to be careful. I cannot get into politics from here, is what she said. Uh, mega Republicans in midterms and election deniers every other day um, seem to be coming up with with these type of things. I, it's she just she talks and and says nothing, right? She says a lot of words just to say nothing. She claims that Republicans have been promoting anti-voting laws around the country, despite not providing any examples of that. And of course, as documented by her herself, uh, she's an election denier. Nevertheless, she persisted in saying that speaking generally, of course, but more broadly, uh, high turnout and voter suppression can take place at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> one doesn't have to happen on its own. They can be happening at the same time, but 
I will leave it there without being able to really dig into the politics of this. Well, common sense would dictate that if voter suppression was occurring anywhere in Georgia, then a record amount of minorities would not be reporting that they have been, you know, that they, that they would be it would be barred from from voting. I mean, obviously, they're not being barred from voting because they're able to vote. Quite the opposite. The the the, the share of of black voters in Georgia is actually increasing from 2020 according to Politico. Um, at this point, this is a quote, at this point, 2020, black voters made up 33% of the share of electorate. And in 2022, they made up 35%, uh, the outlet reported. Yet Democrats can't admit that a Republican voting law actually helped increase Democratic participation. So instead, they just you know, malificate and, and make up nonsense. They, they, they basically just say the opposite. The, the party's entire midterm plan is just simply to deny reality. <laughs> how, is, how is that your, your, your final go, you know, and, and just say, um, yeah, it, it, this is not what it looks like it is. And that's what you want people to vote for you for. I mean, up is down. Right is wrong. Men are women. Abortion is healthcare. Biden is competent. <laughs> I mean, record voting turnout is voter suppression. I, this is a time in our country and in our society where common sense is not common. That's why we call this uncommon sense. You may agree or you may disagree, but we would love to hear from you. And you can always do that at UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications. 